the recruiter in me said, hey, guys, I just want you to know this is going to slow things down in a meaningful way. Are you guys ready to do that? Daniel's response was absolutely we're willing to do it. But I also believe that you can do it quickly. And I said, no, 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 no. And somehow through just collaboration, we were able to grow the company fairly quickly and hit some pretty strong diversity numbers on our way to building the type of company that we want. Welcome to the Greenhouse Podcast, Hiring for What's Next. I'm Daniel Chait, CEO of Greenhouse. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about diversity in hiring. We'll touch on many issues, ranging from attracting a broader slate of candidates, to reducing bias in interviewing, to building an inclusive culture, and much, much more. I recently sat down with Daniel Yanis, co-founder and CEO, and Arthur Yamamoto, VP of Talent from Checker. They are the business and talent leader duo who have been raising the standards on fair chance hiring, each time saying it's not enough and we need to do more. Daniel and Arthur, welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Great to have you here. Really excited about this conversation. Background checks. I'm thinking, isn't that excluding people? Don't I run background checks to make sure I don't let the bad guys in? So historically, background checks is really a risk assessment solution. It does potentially reject people and find flags in people's backgrounds that can be a risk to companies. It used to have a negative reputation focused on yeah, rejecting people and blocking people from mm-hmm. getting jobs. We went into it with a fresh perspective, built a company from scratch around background checks. From the beginning, we want it to be a positive solution that provides safety and, and risk mitigation as well to businesses. But on the other side, we also wanted to make it a great experience for candidates and make sure that it actually doesn't block people and tries to include more people than in the past. I'm really interested in that. I mean, it seems that you you have a take on it that hiring practices can have a real impact on social justice and how that interacts with the U.S. justice system. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. So really doing more this research, we realized that Overall, the background check process is quite strict and conservative. So many background check decisions are binary decision based on the fact, does the person have criminal records or not? And if you look at statistics in the US, you have about a third of Americans who have criminal records in their background, whether it's a minor records or a DUI or more severe. And so you can imagine if a third of people have a criminal record and every time there's a flag, they almost get rejected from an opportunity that is a very strict process and uh, leaves a lot of people without good job opportunities. And that is a problem that continues the injustice and discrimination, and, and that is tied to the social justice system. We try to break this negative cycle where people make a mistake, pay for it, whether they serve some time or fines, and then they are penalized you know, again a second time when they're trying to get a job. We work to develop software that let customers have a more nuanced decision process. And we have data that shows that having a more open background check criteria allows companies to get great talent, to get access to more talent and really good retention and quality of employees and workers. So we were able to tie positive business outcomes for our customers with more fairness in the process and opening opportunities for people with criminal records. Wow, that's really interesting. I mean, you might think someone might say, hey, you know, all else being equal, I'd rather have the person without the criminal record or background versus someone who does. 
But you seem to be saying, no, actually, that limits your opportunities uh, to get the right talent. When you have a discussion with a person that might have made a mistake in the past and discuss you know, their background, you can do an assessment as well to understand, is there still risk or has the person really improved, learned from this experience and, and rehabilitated? And I can share, you know, examples. We have seen ourselves firsthand at Checker. So at Checker, we decided to become a, what's called a fair chance employer. So to practice fair chance, which means giving second chances and opportunities to people with criminal records, we were able to hire amazing talent. We hired a few different employees who had some criminal records in the past. When you give a chance as an employer to someone who has a background and is highly motivated, this is going to be really a successful relationship. And we've seen it because people are really dedicated to the company, really grateful for the opportunity and really want to prove themselves to succeed in life. Overall, we've seen higher performance, higher retention, very positive engagement and a benefit to our culture when we started to give second chances to people to, to join our company. This is now a growing movement of companies, especially companies who care about diversity, inclusion, belonging, and want really to have a positive impact on society. Fairchance hiring is really one way to have a diverse workforce to give back to the community and to get access to great talent, especially in industries where there's a war for talent or not enough talent available. That can be a competitive differentiator. What does that partnership look like from your perspective between, you know, HR and the executives and leaders of an organization when it's working really well? Any partnership has to be a really deep one that has alignment and we're in lockstep, right? So for me, my entire three years at Checker has been about being closely aligned with our executive leadership on what the right way to hire is, our commitment to diversity and doing things in a deliberate, thoughtful way. Daniel, from your perspective, where did that commitment to diversify your own organization come from and what led to that level of real passion and commitment? Yes, yeah, so from the beginning of starting the company, I was passionate about having a healthy organization with a good culture. I do believe that having a diverse workforce is part of creating a healthy culture in a company. It's, it's proven that diversity can bring more innovation, better financial return, and just overall a better collaborative, open-minded culture to the company. So I, I was always committed to having good values and a good culture in the company because I think that's a key ingredient to win in business. Another realization is it's too hard to become a diverse company once you have thousands of employees. The numbers game you know, are just against you and reversing the trend is going to be really, really hard. But if you start early as a startup and focus on having a diverse workforce when you're tens of employees or 100, 200 employees, the numbers are smaller and it's much easier to have a good foundation there, that then you can continue to scale. And more diversity in the company will actually attract more diverse candidates as well and make it a great environment for people of all different backgrounds and diversity dimensions. And so I do think the main challenge is most companies talk about it, but are not really serious or want to act on it because like Arthur said, it's hard. 
And most CEOs or senior leaders, it's not the top priority or don't really believe or buy into the value of diversity. So mm. for me, it was the opposite. I was already a believer and wanted to be a big part of our company. We started early enough and we were committed to it from the early days and making sure that the leadership team that I hired and works with me also is bought in and committed. Those are the ingredients that we said we're committed from the top. We're going to lead by example. We're going to start early and we're going to make this one of the strength of our business. So you've both talked about it being hard. In fact, Arthur, for those listening may not know, but you actually wrote a blog post called Diversity Recruiting the Hard Way. That's not really selling it. I mean, the easy way sounds better. Why, why not do it the easy way? <laughs> There is no easy way to do it, I think, is what it comes down to, right? And, and to really do it, you have to commit to doing the hard way. And there's a opposing forces in my brain as well, right? As a recruiting leader, I want to do things quickly, smoothly. I don't want to do things the hard way. I, you know, my whole life has been trying to figure out how to do things smarter, not harder, right? Mm -hmm. There just wasn't a simple solution. And yeah. when we talked about the different ways and how it could impact recruiting, how it could slow things down, you know, the recruiter of me said, hey, guys, I just want you to know this is going to slow things down in a meaningful way. Are you guys ready to do that? If you're not ready to do that, then maybe we shouldn't do this. Mm. Daniel's response was absolutely. We're willing to do it. We'll get the commitment from it. But I also believe that you can do it quickly. And I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> I can't. It's going to slow things down. He said, no, I believe in you. I believe in the company. We'll be able to do it together. And somehow through just collaboration, there was certainly slowdowns, but we were able to grow the company fairly quickly and hit some pretty strong diversity numbers that certainly weren't good enough for Daniel. But relative to the rest of the Valley, I think we put up some great numbers and on our way to building the type of company that we want. Great. So it starts with this commitment and a recognition that there's a lot of work that has to be done. And from there, you can kind of go begin the journeys. I'd love to talk about what are the things that business and talent leaders need to do? What are the actual tactics that you need to do in order to be successful? Your team has implemented a sort of stricter kind of Rooney Rule Plus. What is the Rooney Rule? What is the Rooney Rule Plus and how does it work for Checker? So the Rooney Rule was started by Art Rooney, owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers. To hire an NFL coach, every NFL team has to interview at least one African-American candidate before they can hire an NFL coach. We really just thought that that was an amazing process and we wanted to up the ante. And so for Checker, what the Rooney Rule Plus means is to make an offer at Checker as a hiring manager, before you can make any offer, you have to have brought in at least two candidates who meet our criteria for diversity. For us, that means that the candidate either does not identify as male or is an underrepresented group. For us in San Francisco, that means... African-American, Latin American, or Native American. In states like Denver, where Asian Americans are underrepresented, we count that as the Rooney Rule as well. It was just tied to research that we saw around university professors. The research that we read said that for women who are applying to be professors, if they were one candidate out of four, they almost had no chance of being hired. If it was two out of four, it was still less than 50% chance. And when you stacked a deck and you had three out of four, then the odds started to even out a bit. 
For us, it just became about making the process as fair as possible, ensuring that we stack the deck with candidates so that hiring managers saw a real diverse slate of candidates before they made a decision. And then we would let them make the right decision for their team and their business from there. So far, it's yielded great results for us. So Daniel, as a leader, what kind of impact have you seen across your business by practicing this rule? Yes, I can start with my team first. So one of my goals was to have a diverse leadership team. I do think it's important to have also diversity from the top and that will encourage and foster diversity in the entire company. If you have a good diversity around the company, but all of the leaders of the company and executive team is you know, white male, that is not going to create a long-term diverse company. So we started in my team and I saw really a lot of positive effects. Having a mix of men and women in the leadership team creates a good collaboration, brings different thinking and different priorities into the team. I saw the benefits of having diversity in my team in terms of making decisions on the business, on people. So that's been very positive. Then across the company, having fair chance being one of our diversity dimensions, having good gender diversity, race diversity, LGBTQ, like the different dimensions, age as well, continued to have a friendly, positive, open-minded culture that we already had in the beginning at Checker, but really accelerated it. People enjoy being as part of teams like this. I do think the, the problem when you don't have a good diversity in the company, it's hard to get it started because let's say you hire the first female on the team or you hire the first black person on a team, they are feeling alone and single doubt person. Having a critical mass really helps people, whatever diversity dimension they come from, feel more included and really feel like they're belonging to the team and to the company. So, mm. so the level of comfort and safety has really improved in the teams as we improved our diversity metrics. So it builds on itself. Yes, it does build on itself. Once you have a good diversity program and it starts to work and your teams are becoming more diverse, it does attract more diversity as well because your employees are going to have a network and people in their network that are going to be diverse candidates. And so it does continue on its own. You have to maintain it and make sure it's top of mind and a priority because it can go away if you forget about it or don't focus on it. But once you're making progress, it does continue on its own, which is, which is nice. Any challenges that you've noticed in implementing that Renewal Plus? I think the first part is just resistance from hiring managers, right? Hiring managers generally, certainly the ones we hire at Checker, care about diversity, but they also have business needs and team needs and desires to get the bandwidth that they need to get the work done. And so anything that's a hindrance to getting that extra bandwidth in place is something that conflicts with their desire to build a diverse team. Speed matters to a lot of the hiring managers, especially if they have referrals that are ready to go and they think are great. I think the issue typically tends to be that referrals tend to look like themselves. And in a lot of cases, if you don't have a diverse team in place, the referrals will highlight that problem even more and continue to drive down diversity. So for us, it's a mix of trying to get the right folks in place, making sure that we get good referrals in the door, but ensuring that there's a strict process and that at the end, we're still working toward building a diverse team. 
So impatient hiring managers, challenges in running diverse referral programs. And I know you all had a sort of no exception rule on the Rooney Rule Plus implementation, which also probably caused angst or stress among your team. Do you have any stories of that working well, of the no exception rule paying off? The first example that we saw was within one of our IT teams. Early on, the team was small. We were looking to build it out. The manager had a great referral that was someone that they had worked with that was ready to work, ready to accept an offer immediately, happened to be a white male. And they needed the help immediately. But we said, there's no exceptions. Daniel stood by that as well. And we pushed them into the Rooney Rule process, ensured that we completed the process at risk of losing that referral candidate. So, you know, the recruiting team takes the pressure on of moving things as quickly and smoothly as possible while maintaining a great candidate experience. We brought in two more candidates, one who was a Latin male and the other was an Asian female. Both did great in the process. The hiring manager ultimately loved all three candidates, pushed to get additional headcount, and we brought all three on. So <laughs> he got his referral, still built out a diverse team, and we got all the IT resources we needed as a company. So it was a kind of a win-win-win for everyone there. That's fantastic. That's a great story. And it goes to show the following a process that's fair for everybody, you know, ultimately leading to a really great outcome and, and more opportunity for you to score some hard-to-find talent. You all mentioned earlier that you've seen a lot of progress, that you've got good numbers relative to your peers. What do you measure? How do you actually measure diversity at, at Checker? Diversity has many dimensions, and it's important to recognize and highlight all of the dimensions of diversity. It can be socioeconomic background, race, gender, religious views. There's really a lot of dimensions of diversity, and they are all, in my opinion, positive and, and good to have a multicultural, diverse workforce with diversity of thought. But it's hard to make progress when we don't measure things. And you know, as an engineer, I, I believe in, in, in measuring progress and in setting targets and goals. And over time, by iterating, you can make changes in any dimension or, or metric you want in the company, as long as you work hard at it and, and keep focus on that metrics. We decided our, our core metrics for diversity will be gender diversity. So we measure gender diversity by the percentage of non-male employees. We include the female and, and other gender identities. We also have underrepresented groups as a measurement of diversity. And then we also have a metric that is checker-only metric, which is the fair chance program and fair chance diversity, uh, people with criminal records that we're including. So those are our three metrics that we're really pushing. But again, when we look at our data and surveys, we also review sexual preference and age and other of the more traditional metrics to make sure that we don't have any gaps or, or that we're making progress in all dimensions of diversity. Fantastic. So as we talk about measuring diversity, any gotchas, any things to be careful about or watch out for as you think about what to measure? Yeah, measuring it's challenging too. Arthur, maybe you can, you can share from the HR perspective, even having accurate measurement is, is not an easy process, right? The difficulty is that in a lot of situations, people have to self-identify. We've found that the accepted SHRM, Society of Human Resources Management, methodology 
the preferred methodology is visual ID. So HR folks really just IDing someone as a specific ethnic background is an acceptable measure, but obviously that's a slippery slope as well. And so we're trying to combine both and making sure that we're bucketing someone somewhere, but there are people who identify as you know multi-race or, or two or more ethnic backgrounds. So there's a lot of slippery slopes there, but we're doing the best we can between surveys and just our HR team being as diligent and fair as possible in identifying people. As far as the gotcha stuff, you just want to make sure that you're being genuine in how you're approaching the metrics, right? And that you're thinking with diversity in mind rather than hitting that metric. That's not the most important thing. The goal is important because you need sort of a North Star to guide you somewhere, but everything is done in that process, right? Ensuring that you're trying to get to the goal rather than just, hey, we're at 50% gender diversity. Now we're done. We can slide the ratio back to 75% male over the course of time because we've hit it once. It's just about really ensuring that the journey is always consistent and the intent is genuine. If you do that, then you're headed in the right place. And I would add that, so the data is not going to be perfect because of those identification potential challenges. We're trying to prioritize self-identification so that people can, you know, themselves express their identity. It's okay if the data is not perfect. You know, I think what's important is, again, is to move the metric into the right direction. So even if we are plus minus 5% off, as long as we keep our eye on the improvement, you know, look at the metric, but also the anecdotes in the company, and we make sure that it's top of mind and the program keeps improving, I think we're doing the right thing and the quality and diversity of the team will be good. Let's move on to talking about how leaders can best support existing staff. I'd love to hear some ideas that you have about how leaders can serve as an ally and as a mentor to their existing employees. We focused a lot on diversity in the early days to really build up the team and make sure we have a diverse workforce, but that is only half of the equation, right? The, the second uh, priority after you hire diverse and great candidates is really how do you make sure that people feel included, feel like they belong to the company and are really, you know, getting to their best potential in a good environment. And so the belonging aspect is very important and it's challenging, especially when the leaders are, let's say, you know, non-diverse and then the team is diverse, you know, there might be some disconnects or misunderstandings on, on how to best support the, the team members. So we have employee resource groups as well, which I think is used by many companies. We have one with people of colors. We have another one for LGBTQ. And we have another one for the female of Checker, um, women of Checker. So having executive sponsors can be very good. A few things that we've done that are helpful are one of our leaders on our leadership team, our, our CFO actually is the executive sponsor of one of our employee resource groups. We've done as well roundtables around the company, especially this summer with George Floyd events. You know, I think that having a open conversation on this hot topic of race and discrimination across the company was, was really helpful. Making sure as, as well that you include people in those discussions, it's important to not have only the people of color from the employee resource group who are having the discussion, right? You want to invite and incentivize people, white people to join the conversation or a woman and allies and really have multiple groups participate into that discussion. 
And then what we did recently is we put in place metrics, goals, and operating plan for belonging. We're looking at retention metrics, promotion metrics, compensation gaps, compensation metrics as well across groups. So we're taking kind of the same data-driven approach to now improve on the belonging or inclusion dimension. To add to that, we're doing a fair amount of sentiment surveys as well. I think that's really important to understand how people are feeling. But more than anything, I think what I've really admired about Checker and Daniel in particular is just his commitment to find leaders who believe in it. And we've gone through our different iterations. As the person who was handling the exact recruiting, I could tell you we've passed on who I thought were really great candidates for exec roles because they just didn't have clear thoughts around diversity strategies. Nobody's perfect with it. You know, Nobody has a locked-in formula for how to do it the right way, but understanding that's important to us and understanding that it's important to them has been a good mix for us and come with an open heart and an open mind and understand that you have your own biases and, and that I do as well and, and that we work together to try to overcome that and do what's best for the company. So to wrap up then, let's give some unsolicited advice to our listeners. Daniel, I'll start with you. What would you advise a founder, a CEO, a business leader about taking the initiative and kind of making that commitment that you've talked about to diversify their company? There's two advice maybe. So the first one is if you are not sure if diversity should be a priority or you don't fully see the value, I would say, you know, do some research, read some Harvard Business Review articles or really business articles around diversity to understand the value, you know, benefits, challenges of it. I think that's part of the education. And that's going to be key for building a modern company that attracts the best talent, I think, in the 21st century. And then the second thing I've, I've seen a lot is I think a lot of founders or execs are afraid to go into this topic of discussing race, of discussing inequalities, because it can be scary with some of the tensions in this country. But I think it's important to be brave. It's not crazy hard. I mean, what's important is to really come with an open mind to show to the company or to your team members that you care about them, you care about people feeling included and, and equal and safe. And then listening. I mean, if you just open up round tables and ask questions around what are our challenges around diversity, what can we do better? to improve those fears in the company or those problems. If you just take the time and make it a priority to listen and to have those conversations about maybe difficult or challenging topics, I think then you will be on your way to be a very different type of company. I think a lot of talent expects uh, these days and wants to join. Great. And then Arthur, what would your advice be to a head of HR, head of talent about taking the initiative to their leadership and working with the company to diversify? The first and most important piece is you have to start at the top and make sure that alignment is there. If your executive leadership isn't really behind it, it's just not going to work. So you have to get that support and alignment first and foremost. And then you have to ensure that the process is conducive to it, right? So ensuring that interviews are repeatable, that as much as possible to reduce bias in the process you want to make sure that the interview experience is the same for every candidate, right? It's not some candidates get the hard questions, some candidates get the easy questions, depending on how you feel about them, right? It has to be the same interview experience for everyone. 
you have to have rubrics and scoring guides and have a strict process. Our engineering team and our technical recruiters had a long process of building out rubrics for the technical interviews. And even then, still going back and spot checking things, right? Having other managers spot check the scoring to ensure that there's fairness there. I mean, we had a case where one of the engineering interviews, when you look back and we spot checked, they had interviewed 40 female candidates and hadn't passed a single one. And we just thought, obviously, mathematically, that's impossible. Making the hard decision that we had to remove that person from the process because they were biased. And also empowering your team to call out errors and bias when you see it. Making sure that your team feels empowered to push back and fight for what they believe is the right way to do it. Thank you so much, Arthur, Daniel from Checker. Thanks for giving us your time, your insights, and your experience. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you for having us. I'm joined now, as always, by my good friend, Ariel Lopez. Ariel is the founder and CEO at NAC, a data-driven talent platform. Hey, Ariel. Hey, Dan. How's it going? It's going great. You know why it's going great? Because we're thinking about interviewing, and there's nothing I like more than thinking about interviewing. Oh, don't I know it. <laughs> Tell me, what, what are you seeing? What, what trends are happening? How are companies creating better interview processes for their candidates? It's a long journey. <laughs> Interviewing is hard, and most interviews happen in a room by yourself with no oversight. No one tells you often how to do it. No one else telling you if you did a good job or not. And so I have a lot of empathy for interviewers. It's not easy. But I think the difference between a good interview and a bad interview, Ariel, is the difference between building a great company and creating a real problem. So it's super, super important. I know you've thought a lot about interviewing and about structured interviews. What are some pro tips that you might have for the best way to get really good interviews done? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Most interviews happen when someone's in a room with zero direction on what they should be interviewing for or how they should properly interview the candidate. Ultimately, it comes down to having a framework in place. I'm a huge fan of standardized and structured interview processes, which means that someone took the time to think about what is actually needed in the role. They took time to think about what that person's day-to-day is going to look like. Um, They took time to develop scenario-based questions to get an idea of how this person would um, act or become a problem solver. Those interviews that usually are ineffective are the ones that don't get to the core of the job, right? You're asking someone about their favorite basketball team or where they grew up or all these things that really don't matter in the grand scheme of things and can also be full of bias and As you and I both know, everyone wants to avoid having bias in their interviews. So I think have a strong plan, have a strong framework. You're going to have a a better interview experience for the candidate. Yeah, making sure you ask the same questions of everyone and you're being consistent and fair helps you get better as an interviewer because you're hearing answers to the same questions over and over again as well. So it's a great way to calibrate. Awesome pro tip. For me, I always think after you've asked those questions, the criteria that you talk about when you make your decisions is really important. People have a tendency to shift criteria. They fall in love with a candidate and then afterwards they try to justify why they like that candidate. But if they agree on the criteria ahead of time, 
And then when they have that discussion, it's really hard to stay on point and say, well, we said these three things are important. Let's make our decision based on those same criteria. Super important to do, but really hard. You're absolutely right, Dan. Awesome. Always great to talk to you. I knew this would be a lot of fun. Thanks, Ariel. Thanks, Dan. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and review our podcast. And stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.